Well, Northside Medina, it is really good to be here with you all today. Um, this whole month, this whole month, we've been doing a series called Rally, and the whole concept was for four different speakers, Joey, Robin, Jeff, myself, to really talk about some of the things as believers in Christ that we can rally around, some of the essentials of the gospel that we need to all have a pep rally around, and that's really been the concept. So, you know, Robin shared, and then uh, Joey did, and Jeff was last week. He talked about service, did this awesome message, and he asked you guys to sign up and volunteer. And you know how many responses we got? Zero. Zero. You know, well, and actually, that's our fault, and I want to tell you why. So uh, we had this little QR code at the bottom of your program last week, and we inadvertently put the wrong sign up on the QR code. So that wasn't on you, that was on us. So I was told, Eric, you've got to be the one that gets up and apologizes about that. So I'm sorry for the mess up, but this week uh, it is at the bottom, and there are a lot of areas where we do need help serving. I'll just read off some of those for you, but uh, when you click on that, there's um, signs, uh, set up outdoor signs Sunday morning, the hospitality coffee team, all the teaching, whether it's kids, whether it's teenagers, starting point team, greeters, decor, worship team, the tech, video lighting, these guys uh, and gals in the back, meal ministry, we want to be able to serve others who are in need and, and deliver some meals to them. So these are all areas where you can serve, but you, uh, if you could just right now if you want or later today before you leave, use that QR code and be sure to sign up. So uh, lots of good stuff going on. I want to get started with a quick Q&A activity. And if you were in Wadsworth last week, you already heard this message. So don't spoil anything, all right? Don't give it away. But Q&A activity. Here we go. Everybody participate. I want you just to talk to the person beside of you. Share your answer. Would you rather be extraordinarily talented or extraordinarily attractive? Extraordinarily talented or attractive? Go ahead. You can talk. If you're already one, you can say that, hey, I need to be the other one because I got one in the bag already. Okay. Henry, he knows. He knows. All right, second question. Would you rather be extraordinarily intelligent or extraordinarily wealthy? Brains or cash, which do you want? Intelligent or wealthy? So I asked my kids that question, and all three of them surprisingly said, Dad, I want to be intelligent, because if we're smart enough, then we can make all the money in the world that we want. I thought that was an amazing compromise. You know, while it's nice to dream about being extraordinary, the reality is none of us really are. We're all pretty much average, ordinary people. We live in ordinary homes. Most of the homes that we live in look just like the other homes up and down our street. A little bit different size, maybe a different color, a different shingle on it, but they all are pretty similar. And then the cars that we drive, they're pretty similar and ordinary as well, right? You know, how many times have you bought a car, you thought, oh, this is the perfect car for me. It's unique, it's special, but then when you drive off the lot, every fifth car you see is the same make, model, and color. Am I right? Happens all the time. Most of the clothes we wear, that's pretty ordinary as well. I'm looking out, and we're all kind of dressed pretty similarly. Maybe some are a little bit more expensive. Some people have a better shoe game than others. I do not. I don't have any fashion sense at all. My wife buys my clothes, and she tells me what to wear, and I'm okay with it. I'm, like, I am comfortable with that. That's okay. But the point is, all of us are pretty much 
just like everybody else. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, think about as you were a kid. When you were a kid and an adult would ask you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? How many of you really excitedly raised your hand and said, oh, I want to be ordinary? Nobody. Nobody did that because deep down secretly, we all want to be a little bit better. We all want to be above the norm. We all want to be extraordinary. But life has a way of making us feel like we're just like everybody else. But here's the good news. Here's really the the concept, the main thing, point for the day. God does his best work in ordinary. Amen? Say that with me. God does his best work in ordinary. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. If not, there's some Bibles uh, underneath some of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one. All right, we'll replace it. If you don't have a Bible, take that one under the seat. Or you can use your phones as well. So in Acts chapter 4, we learn about a couple ordinary guys who did some really extraordinary things. And they were able to do some extraordinary things because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit filled them with courage, and it turned their ordinary into extraordinary. Acts 4.13 is the key verse. If you want to memorize, if you like memorizing Scripture, I want to challenge you to memorize this verse this week. Acts 4.13, Luke, the author, he writes this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, what? Ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So here's what's happening in this chapter. The teachers of the law, the leaders of the temple, they've observed Peter and John teaching. They've watched them perform this amazing miracle, which was healing a crippled man who was in his 40s. And he had never been able to walk in his life. In fact, the previous chapter, Acts chapter 3, it details that story, that account for us. So this man, he has friends that uh, bring him, that carry him to this pool every day, and he sits there and he begs for money. Whatever he gets, that's what he has to eat, that's what he has to spend. He literally is dependent upon everybody else to do everything for him. So Peter and John happen to pass this man. We're never told his name, and he begs them for money. And then Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And immediately, the man's feet and his ankles become strong. His knees are able to bend and move. And he jumps up, and he is jumping and running and just proclaiming what has just happened. Everybody saw this amazing miracle. No one could deny it, especially the religious leaders. And they were really confused because they knew that Peter and John were just plain old average guys. And it was hard to argue with that conclusion because when Peter comes on the scene, he's a fisherman, right? He's a fisherman who had never gone to seminary. He was just a passionate guy who had the knack for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. John was practically the same. He too was a fisherman, part of that family fishing business with his father and his brother. In fact, he and his brother had this nickname, maybe you know it, it's called the Sons of Thunder, which meant basically they got Uh, hot. They got very uh, angry very quickly. So what's more normal, more average than a fisherman with a short fuse? If you've been fishing, then you got that joke. If not, I apologize. Okay. The religious leaders recognized that Peter and John were just ordinary 
simple dudes, yet they were amazed to see the extraordinary things that these men accomplished. So what was different about them? What was different? Well, the Holy Spirit filled Peter and John with courage. Everybody say courage. Courage. That's what turned them from ordinary into extraordinary. And I wonder, can you and I be filled with that same amount, that same level of courage today? Well, let's find out. Immediately after Peter and John healed this crippled man, they preached to a large crowd. This is Acts chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, the previous number of Jesus followers we have in Scripture is 3,000 men, which came two chapters earlier, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that first gospel message, 3,000 men responded. They never counted women and children back in Bible times. So 3,000 then, he preaches another message, has that courage, 2,000 men respond. So we can assume that multiple thousand, three, four, maybe even 5,000 people respond to this gospel message because Peter and John had the courage to speak up. Imagine that. I mean, I'm thrilled when one person at the end of a service responds, but to have four or 5,000 people, that's amazing. And as blown away as I am by that, as I read that throughout scripture, I'm not discouraged at all because I believe that you and I have that same opportunity today. We have that same power because that same Holy Spirit that lived and worked and moved in Peter and John's life is the same Holy Spirit that lives and works and moves in our lives as followers of Jesus today. So yes, you and I can have that same impact on other people. We just have to have the courage to tap into that power. So as we look at their story, we're going to discover two simple things these ordinary men did which helped them become extraordinary. And this really piggybacks well off of Joey's message two weeks ago. How many were here and heard Joey's message two weeks ago? Right? Most of you. Good. So essentially he talked about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And his whole point was, Go means what? Go Go means go. Yeah, very good. Go means go. So all of us are commanded to share the gospel. So he talked about the what, and I want to explain to you the how, all right? So let me just follow up with a question. How many of you, after hearing that message, you've had two weeks now, how many of you actually were convicted to go and you used an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? Raise your hand. Did anybody do that in the last two weeks? Three, four. You were like sheep, sheepishly. All right, five, six. All right, a couple of you. Okay, good, good. Now, for those that didn't, let me ask you, why not? You don't have to respond. Just think about it. I'm going to share a couple reasons why I believe people don't. But then secondly, I would back that up by saying the day isn't over. You and I still have the opportunity to change lives. When we walk out this door, after this service ends, we have that opportunity every single day. 
just have the courage to do it. So that really leads to the first, the first simple thing these ordinary men did, which made them extraordinary. They had the courage to share the truth. If you want to write that down in your outlines, write it down. They had the courage to share the truth. Look again at verse 1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So these men knew that the religious leaders who crucified Jesus were sitting in the crowd, but they didn't let that stop them. They knew that what they were going to say, what they were saying was offensive to these religious leaders because it was in a direct contradiction to what they were teaching, but they didn't let that stop them. They knew the consequences, and they chose to share the truth regardless. That took a lot of courage. You know, there are many reasons why people don't share the truth. I think one of them is simply because of inconvenience, right? We're inconvenienced. Uh, we live in a very fast-paced society. We go, go, go. We are going from one thing to the next thing to the next, whether it's because of family, because of work, because of sports, because of schooling, whatever that is. We are always on the go. And because of that, it becomes very inconvenient for us if somebody, we see somebody hurting, we see somebody that needs prayer, we see somebody that could really use our one-on-one attention just to stop and to pray for them to see what's going on with them, to talk to them, to share the truth with them. So I think inconvenience is a major reason why people don't share the truth anymore today. But also, I think it's because we don't feel like we're qualified to do so. We don't feel like we're qualified. So many people have told me, Eric, I could never do what you do. Couldn't stand up on a stage and, and preach a message. I couldn't talk about Jesus because I've never read through the entire Bible because I don't know all the answers. And my response to them is always the same. Guess what? I don't know all the answers. Nobody does. Even though I've read through the entire Bible, I still don't have all the answers. And I don't do it right all the time. You know, think about Peter and John. They weren't qualified to teach in the temple. They didn't have a degree at all. They didn't have uh, go to rabbinical school. They didn't have any formal training whatsoever. But they simply stood up and they shared the truth about Jesus. They shared what they had seen him do. They shared what they had experienced him do in their lives. And that's what we are called to do as well. We're called to share our experiences with Jesus. The other reason why I think people don't share is because of fear. So many people are afraid to say the wrong things. They're afraid that they're going to point somebody in the wrong direction. That fear makes them freeze up. Has anybody been in that situation before where someone wanted to talk to you about becoming a Christian or about a relationship with Jesus and you just froze? You didn't know what to say or what to do? Anybody? Yeah? Joe, Joe even you? Yeah, even me. Oh, man, that's surprising. Okay. I'm like, I'm like you, so you <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And like Joe, I will tell you, I have frozen in fear before. First time, I'll tell you the story. So I was a freshman in college at at Bible College, Roanoke Bible College in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And occasionally there would be these uh, large teen conferences that would be nearby and we would send uh, students to go recruit for the school. I was one of those students that went and we 
partnered up with me and a senior named Chris. So we went to this large teen conference. There was about 800 teenagers there, all a bunch of different churches. And we set up a table in a booth, and we're recruiting for the school, handing out flyers and pamphlets, talking to kids about, you know, classes and how much fun it is. Lots of, you know, interaction with them. But it was about a two-day conference, and the last session, this youth pastor gets up, delivers a powerful message, offers an invitation at the end, and as Bible college reps, our job was to be up front and help other people, uh, these students who were coming forward, talk to them about whatever decision they needed to make, right? Pray with them. Just kind of figure out what was going on in their heart and mind. So it wasn't just Chris and I, but there were other adults up front as well. I'll never forget this 14-year-old girl. She comes, makes a beeline straight to me, and she says, wow, that was really powerful. I've lived this life of sin, and I know that I need Jesus. How do I become a Christian? And you know what I said? Nothing. Literally. My brain froze. My mouth got dry. I didn't even know where to start. And I said, um, uh, uh, thankfully, Chris, the senior, he was standing right beside of me. He stepped right in and he took over and he got the girl's name. I didn't even know what her name was. I didn't ask for her name. I just like froze. So he started talking to her. He shared scripture with her, uh, had a conversation with her. And then later that night, he was able to baptize her. It was a really cool, very special moment. But he pulled me aside later that evening after everybody had gone. He said, Eric, it's okay because I was beating myself up over this. He said, Eric, it's okay. It happens to the best of us. And I made a promise that night to myself that I would never, ever let that happen again, where I wasn't prepared, where I froze, where I didn't know what to say. So when I got back to my college dorm room, I called my dad, who was a, a pastor as well, and I had seen him have this conversation with people for years. I grew up in the church, right? I should have known better, but I just, I just froze. So I called him and I asked him to send me, uh, to email me the plan of salvation. It's what we teach and talk about here, belief, repentance, confession, baptism, and living a faithful life, and it has all the scriptures with it. I cut it, I pay, um, glued it into the front of every single Bible that I own so that I would never be in that situation again. Now I've shared that conversation with so many people that it's memorized and I could, you know, do that at any place at any time. So my point about that story is this. It does not take a four-year Bible college degree to share the truth. It simply requires a little bit of courage. It requires a little bit of courage. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, and 8, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. And I think that most of us in this room, we would not put ourselves in that category of ashamed, would we? Would anybody say, yeah, I'm ashamed of Jesus? No, right? But I also think none of us or most of us wouldn't put ourselves in that category of courageous for Christ, right? We're all probably somewhere in the middle of those two. So what do we do? How can we become more courageous? How can we really tap into that power of love and of self-discipline and of power? Well, I want you to watch this short video I came across, and it shares just five practical tips on how to share the gospel. Take a look at this. 
Hey, I'm Isaac from InDoubt. In the next 60 seconds, I'm going to give you five practical tools and reminders for sharing the gospel. You ready? All right. Number one, pray. We often forget about the importance and necessity of prayer in evangelism. Get on your knees and pray for the lost. Number two, befriend non-Christians. They're not scary. Don't worry. Just do it. But don't jump right into the gospel. Let them share with you their story and their journey and enjoy the company. Then, number three, share your story. Tell them about your authentic testimony of how God changed you and how he's still changing you. Don't exaggerate. Just say it as it is and try not to use too many Christian words. And don't forget to, four, share all the essentials of the gospel. Don't emphasize or de-emphasize certain aspects based on the person. Talk about who God is, sin, Jesus, his death and resurrection, what that means for us, the Spirit's role in our lives, how we ought to respond daily, and the truth of eternity. And then five, pray again. After you share the gospel with someone, whether they received it well or not, pray. We forget the power of prayer all too often. And finally, as a reminder, it's not our job to save. Jesus is the Savior, not us. Our job is to let down our nets. In other words, spread the gospel. It's in our sharing of the gospel that the Spirit opens the ears and hearts of the lost. Now go, make some friends, and share the gospel. So I really liked that video because it was short, it was sweet, it was to the point. And just to recap, those five practical things that you and I can implement right now today. Praying for the lost, right? You got to pray. It starts and ends with that. Befriending a non-Christian. I tell people this all the time. If every single one of your friends is a believer, then you're not doing your faith walk right. Okay, and you have to surround yourselves with non-believers in order to impact them and share the truth with the lost. So find out somebody who doesn't know Jesus and strike up a conversation with them. Share your story. Once again, what Peter and John did, they simply shared how Jesus had worked in their life because nobody can tell you, oh no, Jesus didn't do that for you, right? They can't deny what Jesus has done in your life. So you share that. And then you share the essentials of the gospel, some of those scriptures that we should all know. And then you pray again. So very five simple, practical, effective ways to share the truth. And I would reemphasize what he said at the very end. And this is in your outline. It's not our job to save anyone. It's not our job to save anyone. It's our job to share because who does all the saving? Jesus. Jesus does all the saving. Peter and John, they, they uh, courageously share the truth. And when they do, a lot of people respond. Some are hostile, right? Some are angry with them. Some are apathetic towards them. But some are very receptive, like the good soil that we talked about earlier. And they make a decision for Christ. That leads us to the second thing these ordinary men did. And that was, and not just having the courage to share the truth, but they also had the courage to confront the lies. Everybody say that. Confront the lies. Let's pick up in verse 5. Luke writes, The next day the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, 
It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to under heaven, given to mankind by which we must be saved. Did you catch the boldness in Peter's voice there? That's courage. I mean, Peter and John are essentially standing before what would be our modern day Supreme Court. They have all the authority to decide whether these men spend the rest of their lives in jail or whether they could be crucified, murdered. Talk about an intimidating scene. This was it. You see, Satan, he's known as the father of lies. He's good at planting seeds of doubt that eventually grow into full-blown lies. Lies that we come to believe about ourselves. Lies that we come to believe about others. Lies that we can't be forgiven. That we could never change. Lies about who we are to God about what we have to do to earn his forgiveness, his trust. Lies about what's right and wrong. Lies about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. In our culture today, I believe over the last five, six years, that those lies have become so rampant, they've really begun to water down the truth. We must be bold, like Peter, like John, and confront those lies. There are many people that have no problem sharing the truth about Jesus. They do that actually pretty naturally. But when it comes to issues of morality, what happens? They back off quickly because they're afraid they're going to offend the person they're talking to, or it's going to make people feel too uncomfortable, or they're worried about what they're going to say, the truth being offensive. You see, because of the state of our culture, we often become afraid to stand up for Jesus, to take a stand in our faith. But when Peter speaks of Jesus, he adds this phrase. It was a small phrase, and you may have missed it. He says, whom you crucified. This stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, that statement was absolutely a slap in the face to these religious leaders. It takes a lot of courage to move the conversation from, hey, let's talk about Jesus, to, hey, let's talk about you. Let's make this personal. And if I can be uh, honest with you, the message that Jesus preached, it was very offensive. It was very offensive. I want you to think about how many times you've left a conversation one question too short. How many times have you stopped one sentence too early. Like the Holy Spirit was prompting you to go there, to dig a little bit deeper with that person that you were having the conversation with, but you didn't because of the what ifs. Oh, what if this upsets them? What if this damages our relationship? What if they get their feelings hurt? What if I push them away? The message that Jesus preached was very offensive. Jesus upset so many people. He upset so many people with his words that it got him killed. It got him nailed to a tree. Never once did he withhold the truth due to the possibility of upsetting someone's feelings. 
He never stopped short because of how he thought his message might be perceived by the crowd. No, he always shared the truth. He always confronted the lies, and he always did it with love and with grace. Now, please understand what I'm saying. What I'm not saying, the point for us is not to be combative or to go around calling people out, whether that's in person or whether that's online, or to become holier-than-thou Bible thumpers. That's not the message here. That isn't what Jesus did. He never confronted people just to be combative. We shouldn't either. However, what I do think we can read here, what I do think we can start putting into practice is if we see a fellow brother or sister in Christ, a fellow Christian, and that's the key, we see a fellow Christian actively living in sin, someone whom we know we have a personal relationship with, then it's our responsibility to sit down and to have a conversation with them and to try to correct them and to try to point them in the right direction. Now, sometimes they'll get upset. Sometimes that will backfire. Sometimes that'll bring some unnecessary heat towards you or your reputation or your name. But that's what we're called to do. Peter and John, they called out the Pharisees. Why did they call out the Pharisees? I was preaching this last week, and a guy came to me after the second service. He said, Eric, I don't understand what the Pharisees did that were so wrong. Well, the Pharisees said that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They said he was a liar, right? And that's what they were saying. They were actually the ones that crucified him, so he just wanted some of that clarity. That's why they were in the wrong, and Peter and John were calling them out. They said, you guys crucified the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's how we should uh, really approach a fellow brother or sister in Christ. But with a non-Christian, we have to be very gentle. We have to be very careful because we don't want to burn the bridge before it's even built, Right? You see, the difference is that non-believers are not held to the same standard that you and I as Christians are. So we can't sit down and, and point out everybody's sin that doesn't follow Christ because they haven't adhered to this yet. They haven't chosen to follow Jesus yet. I'll give you an example, and it kind of goes along with that video. Yesterday, uh, our boys are playing football for Highland, and uh, I was talking with Pryor's coach, my middle son, before the game, I was helping him cook hot dogs, uh, selling concessions, just volunteering as a parent, just getting to know him a little bit more. I've had a few conversations with him, but really nothing more than just kind of, hey, how you doing, that type of thing. So we're 30 minutes at the grill. He's cooking hot dogs. I'm putting them in the buns, wrapping them, doing all that. And I just start talking to him, listening to him some, and, and he knows what I do. He knows I'm a pastor. And it's my job to kind of ask him and invite him to church. It's all of our jobs to do that. So I said, hey, Dave, do you go to church anywhere? He said, no. And he said, I, I don't want to be offensive, but. And usually when somebody starts with that, they're going to say something offensive, right? He said, I don't want to be offensive, but I don't believe in religion. He said, I believe in God, but I don't believe in religion. And so I hear that, and I'm processing internally how I'm going to kind of approach this, right? So I know, obviously, he's a believer, but would be very, very distant. He told me about his, his background growing up. He was Catholic, and uh, his dad was one of the people, one of the ushers, basically, that would go around and serve and collect and do the communion. So one of the, the leaders of the church. And he said, I remember as a senior in high school, and I'd been to you know, Catholic church forever and didn't like it. And my dad came home, and he 
put this paper on the kitchen table where I was sitting. It had a list of 91 sins, a list of 91 sins that I needed to make sure I wasn't committing. And I didn't know what he was referencing, but um, he read through them and he told his dad, he said, Dad, you know, I'm committing 43 of these sins right now. And his dad got really mad at him and said, what? Are you serious? Why, Why are you doing this? Just really condemning him. And then he had the, the boldness to say to his dad, Dad, I count 34 that you're committing. And, and he just got even more furious and in denial about all of that. And I tell you this because partly uh, everybody has a different experience growing up, so we have to really gauge where they're coming from and understand to be able to reiterate the truth. So he says, I, I believe in God, but I don't believe in religion. And I kind of backed him up on that. I said, you know what? Yeah, religion can be a very bad thing. And I'm sorry that that was the encounter that you had growing up. You know, it shouldn't have been that way because all of us are sinners. And I tell them something we say at Northside. Jeff Robbins said it. I say it all the time. When you think you found the perfect church, join it, and it won't be perfect anymore because we are all flawed individuals. And my point to, to the coach was the Bible is not a religion. The Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. The point and the purpose of the Bible is a relationship with Jesus. So I get your angst with religion, but let's, let's look at it in a different light and begin with that relationship with Jesus. And he said, you know, thanks. It was a good conversation, and we had to go. He had to coach, and I was getting ready. So that was kind of how it ended. But you see the difference between calling him out and saying, oh, you're wrong, yada, 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 instead of actually... Uh, listening first and then responding with that relationship with Jesus. So that's just an example, and I'm sure you guys have had examples like that as well. So Peter, he boldly here proclaims the truth. He says, there, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which you can be saved except for Jesus. And by the way, you crucified him. It takes a lot of courage to stand before someone and say, there's only one way to heaven. It's not through Buddha. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Hinduism or Scientology. It's not through this New Age movement or this blend of whatever you want to believe. Jesus is the only way. And that's kind of where Dave, uh, the coach, was. It was that blend of whatever he wants to believe, and I'm gently pointing him back to Jesus. The truth is there are some places where being courageous isn't all that difficult. You're sitting in it right now. It's easy for us to swap stories and to share and to encourage one another here because we all have the same mind. We're all on the same team and on the same page together. But there are certain people and there are certain places where this becomes even more challenging. Maybe you're at work and it's your lunch break and you pull out your Bible to start reading or your Bible app on your phone and you spend time in prayer on your lunch break, but you're the only believer. You're the only Jesus follower at your work, and you know everybody's looking at you, so your hands start to shake a little bit, and you become nervous. What are they going to think? What are they going to say to me? What are they going to do? Am I going to get in trouble for reading the Bible, for having my quiet time on my lunch break? Right? That's, that's a little nerve-wracking. Or maybe as a student at school, at high school or in college, you're sitting in science class and your teacher starts talking about evolution and teaching that we came from amoebas to monkeys to man and this is how it happened and there is no other way. And your hand feels like 100 pounds as you're raising it slowly to defend your faith and to state why you believe in the Bible. You see, there's a lot of us that, that struggle, that, that can hesitate when it comes to that. It takes courage to share your faith with a stranger. 
And I think it takes even more courage personally to share your faith with a family member. How many of us have family members that do not know Jesus? Most, almost everybody in the room. You see, you can't run away from family. You can avoid them for a while, but you can never really get rid of them. If I'm talking to a stranger, I may never meet that stranger again. But if I share the gospel with a family member, and it goes sideways, or they get bent out of shape, or we just really have a a bad altercation, I'm going to see them again at Thanksgiving, and it's going to be awkward. I'm going to see them again at Christmas time, and then what's going to happen? But that, that fear of the what ifs should not stop us from sharing the truth or from confronting the lies. It doesn't matter who it's with or where we have that conversation. Now, here's how the story ends. The leaders see that these are not ordinary men, and so they decide the best thing that they can do is just to shut them up. Verse 15, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You see, Peter and John, they stand before the very same men that whipped Jesus, that beat him to within an inch of a life, and then that nailed him to a cross. They stand before these same men who are ordering them not to talk anymore about Jesus, and they flat out say no. No, we don't care what you say. We don't care what you're going to do. We don't care that you may hunt us down. We cannot help but speak about the truth of Jesus. He died for me, and I am going to live and speak and share for him. I love that. And then look at this. Look at this. After their release, Peter and John go straight back to the church together, and they pray this, verse 29 and 30. Now, Lord, Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, they didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for security. They didn't pray for a hedge of protection around them. They didn't pray that their attackers would just go to someone else. What did they pray for? What did they pray for? boldness and courage to share the truth and confront the lies. Friends, that's my challenge for all of us today. This week, I pray that every single day that you wake up, before your feet hit the floor, that you would make that your prayer as well. God, fill me with courage. Fill me with boldness today so that I can speak your truth and I can confront the lies. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Isn't that interesting? They prayed and God answered. Friends, there is great hope for all of us ordinary people because the truth is when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, God gives us the courage to live extraordinary lives. 
just like Peter, just like John, you can make a difference in your families, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, at your workplaces. You have that same Holy Spirit power if you've chosen to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. And if not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I'd love the opportunity to talk to you, to share with you the truth of Jesus if you need to make him your Lord and Savior today. So whatever decision you have, please stand as we sing this last song.